Hello, NSA, and welcome to the 2014 December edition of Voices of Experience. I'm your host, Michael Hoffman. Once again, we will give you tips and techniques, ideas, and examples that will help you grow your business and rock your platform. For those of you with the app version, be sure to check out the video available on the last segment, Cup of Hoff, by clicking the movie icon next to the play icon on the bottom of your screen. Well, it's the holiday season, folks, and on behalf of everyone related to VOE, we'd like to start this month by jumping into our theme of gratitude, giving back, and charity, by letting you know that we are truly grateful for the time that you spend with us each and every month. So as you listen to the best we have to offer to grow your business and help you be the most influential you can, think of a way to use that growth to reach out to those around you and give thanks for all you have. If you want an example of creating a business based on giving back and helping humanity, then meet Anne Malam. Anne was the creator and founder and CEO of a nonprofit organization called Back on My Feet, which used her love and discipline of running to help the homeless community find strength and literally get their lives back on their feet. She has now set her sights on a for-profit organization called SolidCore, which helps people transform their lives physically through one of the most effective approaches to physical fitness that you'll be hearing a lot about. But I wanted to have Anne share with us not only her story, but what she's learned in creating two organizations with purpose. Tell us a little bit of background on Back on My Feet. You know, what was the concept uh, and how did it get started? And mm-hmm. where's it going now? I was in Philadelphia. I was uh, 26 years old and, you know, looking for something bigger in my life. And, you know, running had always been a, a staple in everything that I did for the last 10 years. And if there was anything that I knew, it was that I was a runner. And I was running by this homeless shelter that I had passed by hundreds of times, literally before. Mm. But in May of 2007, there was a connection that was made with a group of guys hanging out outside that shelter um, that grew over the, over the next couple of weeks. And, and I realized that, you know, I shouldn't just be running by them. I should actually start a running club. And, you know, running doesn't discriminate. It doesn't matter if you are white, black, rich or poor, homeless or not. I, I thought it could make these guys feel as, as good as it made me feel. So I convinced the director of that shelter to let me start a running club and... You know, there was nine very charismatic, jovial, awesome guys who said yes. And, you know, I think about that, too. If there was a different group of guys, would it have been the same experience? And all of these pieces were just kind of falling into place that helped this idea seem so possible and so real that it was and so viable and for everybody else you know it didn't right here i am thinking this is the beginning of an organization that can actually help people change the direction of their life and we can add real programming in and and this is going to work and i think if you know if there was a different nine guys there that didn't respond the same way you know maybe i would have felt differently so again there's lots of these pieces in the beginning that i just don't think i was clever enough to plan and they just happened and i was sort of being directed and I really feel like it wasn't much of a choice for me. It was just like, I kind of know what I'm supposed to do. 
It's not an obvious connection to what you're doing and, and actually the question, do people actually, do the homeless actually get up and run with you? Yeah, you know, the contradiction of homelessness and running, uh, you know, is what gave the initial idea a lot of attention right away. I mean, it was like a media frenzy, right? People had to actually come and see this and, and once they came and saw and talked to these guys and saw the charisma that they had and, you know, the character and learned some of their stories, you know, all of a sudden it was like the city of Philadelphia rooting for these nine guys and wanting to see what was going to happen sure. with them. And again, that reaction helps us, right? Like the shock value of initial reaction from people actually works in our favor because it, it gets people's ear, gets their attention, and it's been beneficial. Now, this has been going on for quite a while. You guys started this in 2007? Yeah, 2007 was the, you know, the running club, right? And that was the beginning. And then in 2008, January is when I made official 501c3, which we didn't get till August, right? So almost a year later, the entity was formed. It takes, you know, it's a big effort to form an actual nonprofit entity. You've got to do a lot of legal right. work, which we got done pro bono, obviously, but it's bylaws, it's board members, it's, you know, all of these things to be recognized as an official 501c3. So. By the way, if anybody uh, is listening to this and wants to really get involved, it's a great organization to get involved and go to backonmyfeet.org and, uh, and play, come into a city near you. I hope this thing covers the country because it really is changing lives. Now, can you wax on for a minute or two on just the business aspect? I mean, you went, you, you built two very large organizations. I know Solid Core is on its way. Talk to us a little bit about business as far as what are some of the biggest things that you've learned in putting together this very successful nonprofit? Just on taking a vision and a passion and turning it into a business. Anything? Well, I think I think the it comes down to people, right? And I I can be really convincing and I believed in this uh, as as you know it wasn't a crazy idea to me that didn't sound right I could I could sit in front of anybody and convince them that this was gonna work and was working and somebody is sitting across the table and doubting themselves or coming across like they're unsure um, or that you can you know change their mind about something it just becomes a little less believable and I think you know my dad gave me really good advice and it was when I was a kid there's a cute story that goes along with this, but we were, it was North Dakota and it was February and uh, we were young. I mean, it was like we were eight, nine and 10 and we were so bored, right? There was nothing to do. And my dad was sick of us whining and told us to go get our swimsuits. And, you know, we're like, what, you know, where are we going swimming and whatever else? And my dad pulls up to a hotel and, you know, we thought, are, you know, this is great. We're, are we getting a hotel room? And my dad says, no, we're going to go swimming. And we're like, well, how does that work? <laughs> and my dad just said, you know, walk in like you own the place. And, you know, so we walk in there and my, you know, whatever dad just asks, you know, where's the pool? And when you ask something without hesitation and people just tend to give you the answer. And I think that a lot of my approach, because I, I, I don't, you know, I don't, have any experience in running a nonprofit? I didn't have any experience running a company. You just have to know that your your life and reputation depends on you making this work. And if you believe you're doing the right thing and that you you can help these people and you can build something that's going to be beneficial, you you have to exude that. So I think that's the first thing, and that can't be underestimated, right? The charisma and passion of the person leading the charge has to be palpable. It has to be so you know again that anybody would you could convince anybody that the sky is green right like that's 
kind of the level I think you need to be at if you're going to take a big leap. And secondly, you have to know what you're not good at. You know, I didn't, uh, I didn't know that right away with back on my feet. I thought like I can do everything, you know, I can figure all of this out and I'll, and I'll do it. And, and I know what's best. And I know that my way is the right way because this thing is mine and I built it. And you know, you obviously fall on your face a couple times and realize that somebody else's opinion was, was probably right and yours was wrong and so learning again what you're good at understanding what you're good at and what your value is to what you're building and knowing what your value isn't and then pulling those people in to to help you is really important here's what I just heard from you. Really understanding yourself, what your value is and what your value isn't, and then surround yourself with those people. Same thing as I don't know everything. That is so true, especially in the speaking business. This is a lonely business. You know, not everybody has 80 people that work for us. We have one, maybe a, maybe a person, maybe most of it's ourselves, but to really understand what you do and don't do and, and fill in the nooks and crannies. I really like the story about act like you own the place. What a way to change a child's life. Yeah. Good job, and, Dad. You know, it can, you know, if you can make someone believe like they can fly or that they can do something, sure. and if you can do that, that's when people get on board with your ideas and on board with helping you because that's what you kind of exude is possibility. Well, wax on a little bit about what's next for the woman who creates with purpose. What? Tell me about Solid Core. What is Solid Core? Where are you going with it? Yeah, so Solid Core is a uh, health and fitness community that offers the best workout possible that helps people become the strongest version of themselves. And it's all based in studios. So there are currently four studios. Uh, by the time this runs, there'll be five studios in DC with two more opening in the next two months following that. And then, uh, there's one in Minneapolis. So we've only been open for less than a year and there's been a ton of growth already. And, um, my plan is to take the next year and continue to build the foundation of this company, make it extremely strong. We have a great infrastructure already in place with the amazing team of, of women who helped me run this thing. And I am I'm not sure what's going to happen after solid core. You know, I'm not, I'm not into five-year strategic plans. It's not how I operate any aspect of my life at all. I just stay true to my heart and my gut and my brain. And I make decisions based on how those things work together. So I know that I'll be doing this for the next, you know, 14 months. And then I don't know what's going to come along my way between now and then. And if something sparks my interest, I'll pivot and change direction. <laughs> you allow that to happen. Yeah. I'm, a, yeah. So our convention is going to be in Washington, D.C. this summer. And I say we get a big old group of us and go, uh, let's go check out Solid Core in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I'll be disappointed if I don't see you guys. <laughs> All right. We'll try to make that happen. And you have, you have quite a celebrity list of people that use you, specifically one of the highest women in the country, I hear. Yeah, yes. I think I know who you're talking about, but I can confirm that. Uh, Mrs. Obama does work out at the studio very consistently. She's there two to three days a week, and, you know, she gets motivated, and we can encourage her just like any other client does. And I think that's why she keeps coming back is because she's not treated differently. She gets, you know, the real, authentic raw sense of the community like everybody else does and there's no special you know class that only she gets she's working out with you know her friends that she brings in and we bring in people and it's a lot of teamwork and everybody's sweating and suffering together 
Fantastic. Thank you, Anne, for your time. I just really encourage everyone to follow this lead of being a person that creates with purpose because it just mushrooms. I really hang on to what you said that nobody will rise to the level of you. That's what I heard you talking about is you bring the passion. You bring the idea. You bring the start. Who knows where it's going? Let's just start it. But you're not going to have a lot of people surrounding you going, come on, Anne, this is going to be awesome. (laughs) No one rises past you. So, you know, ignite the passion. Open up your eyes connect with people and do something with purpose. I am on the road. I make my living speaking. I have been in that situation where, you know, as a younger man, I could pretty much speak all day long, whether it was speaking or training. Now I really have to pay attention to my voice because of the wear and tear that it it just It just takes being and living on the road, being a road warrior. So I am sitting across from a vocal teacher that I have great respect for. I've been doing this for 35 years. Ginny Lamore has been a vocal teacher for lots of prominent people. And matter of fact, you've got several people on Broadway right now. I have one on Broadway right now, and I have two on Broadway tours. Wow, that's fantastic. Well, you've been doing this for a long, long time. Can you can you help me out a little bit? The vocal cords are, are a little mysterious to me. Okay. You know, they're, I, I feel them. I know where they're at. I'm, Clearly, but since earlier you called them muscles. I did. <laughs> they are a little mysterious well, to you. <laughs> I'm not a doctor, although I played one on TV. <laughs> but, so help me understand what are the vocal cords and why do they feel the way they do? Why do they feel grumbly? Why, I mean, what's going on? When you say healthy, what's going on? What is a vocal cord? Well, they're like ligament-type structures that have muscle and soft tissue attached, and they vibrate when air goes through. So I really wanted to tap into your expertise, because this is a common thing. I mean, this is this is how we make our living. I might not be singing, but I speak a lot. And uh, I want to tap into, as a road warrior, give me some things that I can do to keep this instrument in better condition. Well, the first thing is just overall health. When you're taking care of your overall health, your vocal cords are going to be healthier. Now, obviously, there are some things that you want to do that are specifically good for your vocal cords. But just in general, you want to be getting plenty of sleep, which is hard to do on the road. And especially you get to the hotel, you're tired, but you're not quite ready to go to bed because you're wired and you're thinking about the speaking you're going to do the next day. You've got to be able to find ways to go ahead and go to bed and get some sleep. So you want to get plenty of rest. You want to eat healthily, and I don't think you need to be crazy about it, okay? I think that's that's just as detrimental, feeling like you can never eat anything that's unhealthy. Or, I mean, I think moderation, I think making generally healthy choices, that doesn't mean you can never eat. But you have to be aware that there also are certain foods that are a problem to your vocal cords. Like, for instance, if you're going to be speaking the next day, you probably want to stay away from milk products because they tend to produce phlegm and that coats your vocal cords. Not good. You want to avoid things, and we're also going to talk a little bit about hydration, but you want to avoid anything that's dehydrating. So you want to stay away from alcohol, which I know you get off a plane, you want to relax, get ready for bed, have a glass of wine, and the alcohol is drying. You don't want that. Caffeine, if you're waking up the next morning, trying to get your energy up. Caffeine is not your vocal cords friend. So that is also drying. So you want to eat foods that are not going to coat your vocal cords. You want to drink things that are not going to be drying to your vocal cords. And and your stamina, which is also very important, you need to be able to support correctly and you can't support correctly if you don't have stamina. Yeah. So rest is important. Rest is important. Exercise will help you to have better stamina and also to be able to sleep better. 
being aware that when you fly, flying is the environment is very drying to your body. So you want to drink, you want to stay hydrated and that isn't just trying to coat your vocal cords or wet your vocal cords it's about keeping your body hydrated because when your body is hydrated your muscles are plump and your vocal cords are controlled by muscles so your muscles are are healthier and your vocal cords are healthier when they're kept moist so you want to drink things that are going to keep you hydrated that's really the best thing is water just and you don't want extremes of temperature you don't want to be drinking ice water and you don't actually want to be drinking hot fluids either warm is good you can have things like tea but just let it cool don't let it it doesn't have to be tepid but just don't have it super super hot you don't want to be drinking drying things like alcohol and caffeine really emphasizing that alcohol aren't you well because i know you mike really well (laughs) and i'm thinking the caffeine and the alcohol are things that i need to tell you over and over again it's because you love it's because you care it's because i care so you know our vocal cords when you say stay hydrated If I'm going to hydrate my vocal cords, it's not the process of pouring water over my vocal cords. Correct. It's the process of getting water into my system, which hydrates yes, from internal. Exactly. Okay. So it's not like I can go and drink a, uh, you know, a big glass of water right before I go on and have my vocal yeah. cords hydrated. As a matter of fact, I've had I have one student in particular that every time she sings for a competition, that she gets very, very dry. And see, that's the other thing is that nerves make you drier. They dry out your mouth. That <laughs> cotton mouth make yes, your tongue exactly. swell. Exactly. And so she would drink and drink and drink and drink right before her audition. It did nothing. So the hydration needs to really come before that. It's not going to hurt because you know, like when I'm teaching my voice students, I have them continuously drink a little bit of water throughout room temperature water in case I haven't stressed that enough you don't want something that's shocking to your vocal cords what can I do when my voice when I can feel my voice being dry or I can feel it having the phlegm because I've had dairy and a big thing how can I fix my voice before I go on well I mean you've heard of lemon and honey okay so lemon and honey work lemon actually does cut through the phlegm so that's a good thing to use. It, it kind of depends on why you're having problems. If you've strained your voice, you don't want to do anything that is going to be harsh. If you strain your voice, if you do things that are jarring to your vocal cords, your body is going to naturally want to protect them. So they're sending the coating down. Yes. There. Okay, now, gotcha. obviously, if you're if you're eating foods that create phlegm, is that the best word we can use? Uh, it's their word. <laughs> So yeah, so if you've got extra uh, phlegm, lemon will help that. Honey is really good for coating in a good way, I guess, because phlegm is, is something that you want to try to clear out, but honey on your vocal cords is actually soothing. Well, there you have it, Road Warriors, down and dirty from our vocal teacher, Ginny Lamore. The night before an event, get plenty of rest. Hydration is important. Make sure you're constantly trying to get your system hydrated by drinking water over long periods of time, not just a good gallon before you go on. That's not going to do anything. And stay away from those drying things like caffeine in its various forms. And, of course, try to keep down on the alcohol the night before. <laughs> that's going to be a tough one for me. Of course, that's just getting us started, and we'll get back to Jenny on more segments of Being a Road Warrior. Hey, I've got a question for you. What's your business all about? Chris Bascinelli's business is all about reaching this generation to be a positive voice for a self-focused world. 
He's one of those people that has lived a lifetime of significance in a very short time. His message of creating a culture of compassion has taken him around the globe using lots of methods to deliver that message, such as television, writing, and of course, speaking. Most recently, finding himself igniting his message of creating a world culture of compassion in front of the UN. Chris Bashanelli, or Bash to Most, talks to us today about how to transfer our passion to our business, our lives, and our platforms. You're blowing it going right now, though, man. How's the show going? How's everything? I can't even stop to look back. I just am like, there's so much happening, you know, in a good way. We just locked our TV episode from Mongolia. It's very strong. Just sent it to to National Geographic Channel, so waiting to see what they say about it. But I already have an international deal in place for that killer episode. And I'm um, just like speaking nonstop. I was in. I was with the Secretary General in Bali. I was with Jane Goodall this weekend, hanging out in her hotel room. Oh. And now I'm going to Alaska. I'm going to Alaska next week. I'm speaking to the Alaska Travel Association. Honestly, Mike, I, I really feel like I'm in some sort of groove here. Not that I'm. I, I'm putting effort into the speaking, but it's a, it's an effortless effort. I'm really just putting effort into learning and sharing and growing outside of speaking, and then the speaking stuff just happens naturally. Place. So it becomes the method of communication versus the goal. Right. It's just another. It's just another branch of a tree. That's all. It's like speaking doesn't matter. Speaking, TV, writing, interview, whatever. It's all the same. Really, it's all the same. I ho- totally believe that. Really cool. Well, what's on the adventure list these days? You did the thing for Mongolia. That's been cool. I mean, you got, you've been all over Ghana, Tanzania. I love the Mongolia thing. But so what's on the agenda as far as what irons are in the fire? Right now, I'm on the business side of things. So I'm working with my agent and we're like negotiating with networks and trying to get a commission, a full ongoing series. So as far as like the next adventure, there's I have a lot of ideas, but there's nothing on paper yet. But I'm fine with that, really, because I got to finish the first project before I go to the next one. You go to Mongolia, what's your what's your big goal? The goal is to try to reach that MTV audience that's watching the Jersey Shore and the Real Housewives. <laughs> I mean, look, there's no way around it. The goal at the end of the day is, is to get people to step outside of themselves. Not only outside of their comfort zones in terms of a pushing beyond their boundaries, but also also really living for others. That's what it comes down to at the end of the day. Because I've seen that's where fulfillment really, really comes from. So everyone, I want to get everyone to tap into their potential and 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 connect with their passion and use it and use it to serve others. But in specifically, what my goal is with this TV show is to create a culture of compassion. Because I feel like before we can eliminate extreme poverty, before people are going to, you know, I'm not even talking about donating money to Africa. I'm talking about being aware of the homeless person that you're passing by on the street or the person that's giving you your coffee. They need to be aware that they exist. And right now, our focus is 100% always on ourselves, and we got to shift it so that it's more outward. And how can we do that with a TV show? Wait and see. Bash, one of your strengths is that lots of people, including myself, love the fact how authentic you are on the stage. And do you think that has anything to do with living your passion or doing what you really love to do? All of my experience has taught me the difference between... Uh, pretending to be someone and just being yourself. You know, life is a continuous process of understanding and connecting with our true self. So when I was an actor, when you're acting and you're in the classroom, your teacher and the other classmates are, are constantly having you in check. Chris, that's not real. That's not real. That's not really the character. That's You're lying. You're lying. You're lying. That's what they constantly do to make sure that you're being real as that character. And the same thing as a TV host 
I'm not a TV host, but I say that because it makes sense conventionally. I'm just a person that is on camera being myself. I think the second that you turn on and off, the second they say, okay, Chris, we're rolling, and you change, people know it. People know it, and they turn on. So it's the same thing that when we walk on stage, I don't feel like I have to be somebody that I'm not. I'm just myself. So the challenge is not to be a better speaker. The challenge is to be yourself in front of a large group of people, and that's it. And the more you're willing to expose yourself, the more you're willing to learn about yourself, the more you're willing to put yourself out there, then it becomes so easy to speak on stage. I never get nervous when I speak on stage because I know I'm just being myself in front of a large group of people and I take the time to go to a, a, a place where I can connect with my passion and my intentions before I walk onto that stage. You know what's interesting? You get to a place, uh, I've seen this many times in my life where like I'm just sort of going through the motions like as a speaker, I'm like, Yes, I believe everything that I'm saying, but I haven't had the experience of it. And then once you have the experience of it, you're like, this is real life. And then it makes you that much of a better speaker if you can connect with those hardships. And I'm being ambiguous on purpose, but it's, it's just interesting. And now I finally, I think, got to a place where I'm starting to see that there is some truth to what I share because I, it's coming from experience now. But you know, at 24, I, I, what could I have? You know, what experience could I have? Now I'm getting older. I'm almost 28. I've seen a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep talking, brother. <laughs> I, will, I will tell you, though, you have made so many great life choices. You have more experience in those four years than most people do in an entire lifetime. So kudos to you. Thanks so much. I think the best speakers are genuine seekers and people that are interested in learning and growing. Once somebody feels that they they know enough, then I think that they're done. Mm-hmm. Bruce Lee said it the best, and he said there's there's no word, he said there's no such word as mature. He said don't, don't say, don't ask me if I'm mature, because if you ask me if I'm mature, that means that I've stopped growing. There's only maturing. So yes, I'm maturing, but I'm not mature. Bruce Lee, man, and then he ripped your heart out with a single punch two inches ah. from your heart. It was nice. <laughs> I think that's really the crux of it. I think the crux is that it's it's about it's about learning and growing as an individual, and the speaking will come. If I was to grow my business by focusing on my passion, how would I go about doing that? Sometimes we have to create businesses that never existed, but oftentimes we'll be able to find somebody who's doing what we want to do and match and mirror them. Uh, I think that's a Tony Robbins term, match and mirror. But but, the, but basically the idea is find somebody who's successful and copy what they've done. That's what I've done. I look at uh, you know the person that I model my career off of because he's the closest to sort of the, the model that I'm going for is Anthony Bourdain. Anthony Bourdain wrote a best-selling cookbook, became a TV host, travels the world, bridging the gap. Uh, I, I, I took his model, you know, and I take a little bit from Dr. Jane Goodall. I take a little bit from Don Rickles, you know, and I just kind of do that myself. At the end of the day, you know what it is, Mike. It's, it's the, the, you're only going to be able to spend a lot of time doing something if you're passionate about it. And you're only going to be able to get paid to do what you love if you spend a lot of time doing it. The more time you spend doing it, the better you get, and then you're going to get paid. More and more, the better you get. But you have to have the passion in there to begin with. That's how I'm a speaker. I never intended to be a speaker. I never intended to be a speaker. I just started doing what I was passionate about, and the speaking happened by chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like how you say that the speaking is just one avenue of your delivery system. 
It's just Third Avenue. There's also Fourth Avenue and Ridge Boulevard and Shore Road. So there's a lot more. That's just in Bay Ridge. And Shore Road will get you into trouble, my friend. <laughs> no, Fourth Avenue. Fourth will get, Avenue will get you in trouble. All right. Well, Shore Road, depending what time of night it is. <laughs> yeah, depending on the type of night. But that's one of my favorite delivery systems. You know what I'm saying? There you go. <laughs> Printing money legally is an important topic. You are the king at printing money, and I'm talking about mm. licensing. Mm -hmm. I really am. I've met very few people that really have a handle on how to do that well and serve their customers and, and have fun doing it with licensing. So let's talk about that. Tell me more about that idea. Well, let me tell you my first licensing experience very quickly. I got a call from a company. They wanted to have the rights to license some of my material for their, their salespeople, their uh, mutual fund wholesalers to go out and add value to the advisors. And she said, you know, what would it cost? And I said, well, I don't know, let me work up a proposal or something. So I, I called my friend Bill Backrack. He wasn't in, so I talked to his wife. I said, you know, have you done any licensing agreements? She says, well, yeah, maybe a little, I think. And I said, well, what did you charge? She goes, oh, I don't know. So I go back, you know, and I'm starting to work up a proposal. And um, I sent it to my assistant, and as it, she wanted it for, you know, for about a year and a quarter. So I sent a proposal to my assistant to look at, and I changed the, you know, the the 55 to 65, and she sent it back to me. I'm getting ready to send it to the client. I changed the 65 to 75. Why? Because I felt like it. I just wanted to make more, right? <laughs> there's there's no rules to this, right? So I send it out, didn't hear for about three weeks. I thought I blew her out of the water with money. She finally calls me up. She says, okay, so 65,000 over a year and a quarter, that's 75,000, that's about 100,000, right? So, uh, and we're gonna get a PowerPoint, right? And you're gonna train our folks, right? And um, you're gonna uh, do an audio recording from, yeah, okay, good. So can we write you four checks? for 25000 each so we don't have to get special approval to get this money paid to you? And I go, yeah, that's fine. That so, would be fine. Yeah, so that was my first licensing situation. It, it found me. I didn't find it. And from there, of course, I've run with it, and we can talk about you know what it takes to make it work. So your first experience with going deeper and longer in organization really opened up your eyes to the idea of let's make this event stretch as long as we can through licensing. Well, yeah, because there's the cost of sale is almost nothing. Right. I mean, in this particular case, I, I did fly out to a location, did a half-day train-a-trainer. Mm -hmm. I gave them my PowerPoint. That was my cost of sale, not much. Right. Let's get into this licensing. Where do you start? What What do I have to have in order to really take advantage of licensing? Well, there's two kinds of licensing, and what I'm about to say applies to both. One kind of licensing is where corporate licensing, where you sell the rights to a corporation to train their people with it. The other type of licensing, which I don't do much, just a little, is where you might sell the rights to another speaker or a trainer or an entrepreneur of some sort to then you know, sell it and teach it un under your banner, so to speak, under your logo, et cetera. Um, so what I'm gonna talk about is mostly the corporate kind of licensing. And the first thing you need for either is a transferable system. In other words, you have to bring people from point A to point B. There has to be an obvious result, uh, knowing what to do and then doing what you ask them to do. We're, we, you know, people say we're in the speaking business or the marketing business or the information business. No, we're not. We're in the results producing business. And the more we can tie what we do to a specific result, 
the better everybody's going to do it. The, the end user, the client, us, everybody. That's so, why they hired you. Well, yeah. yeah, for me especially. Now, sometimes the result's different. If you're a keynoter, if you're motivational, that's different. The result they want is energy at a meeting. Mm-hmm. And that's different than what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about people with a, a lot of intellectual property, a lot of content, and they move people from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. If you have a book, good chance you do have the content depending on how the book's written, but good chance you have that process. You might need to find an instructional designer to help you turn that content into something that's very teachable and transferable. Has to be transferred to people, meaning people will take it, use it, act on it, and someone else can maybe teach it. Which brings the next question, which is, do you, uh, you know, train the trainer in the organization or do you go video? Now, I personally went video because I have more control over the end product and how people get trained. Everyone in the organization is, is being facilitated through my video training program. So I, the quality of the facilitator doesn't matter as much as if you're having someone actually imparting the information with PowerPoint and, and doing it live training, right? So you're using the differentiation between video as in you're actually doing the delivery versus somebody else and train the trainer. You're not using your video to teach the train the trainer. Correct. Uh, they are the facilitators showing my videos, and that is the training. And so I have a guide that the facilitator gets, and it, it walks them through when to play the DVD, when to stop, when to start, what, what uh, role play to do, what questions to ask. And I tell my clients, I mean, it's pretty much idiot-proof. I've, I've, I've designed it in a way that everybody know what, knows what to do when. And I decided to go this way because now everyone's getting the same training by the same person, me, same language, same cultures being built, everything is standardized. I don't have to worry about approving the trainer who's gonna do my stuff because I'm doing it and they just facilitate the process. Everybody's speaking the same language, I like that. Everybody's on board, so it's continuous. So you've got something that's transferable. You think there's something that you really got that can really bring results to this company. Mm-hmm. You've made your choices as to how this is gonna be delivered, whether it's gonna be their people train the trainer, I'll bring them up to speed, certify them in my process, versus giving them the potential in the program for me doing the delivery. Mm-hmm. How do I set that up? Tell me how do I talk about it to give them that option? Right. Well. It's all in the conversations, the questions you ask, and how you talk about your value, et cetera. You can't just say, hey, I have licensing. Do you want to buy some? You know, it's, I've got some licensing right yeah. here. So in my business, what I'm trying to do now is the speech is really either the beginning of the licensing program, that, that we're going to roll it out. It could be in the middle. It could be at the end. Um, or it could be the audition for the licensing. But everything is about them creating results, and we know a speech is not going to create a lot of results. So, and I learned this from my buddy Stephen Gaffney, who learned it from Alan Weiss, and that is when people call in, I say, you know, what is the objective? What are you trying to accomplish here? Why this topic now for this group? And, well, they're having a hard time doing this. We're in a real, you know, but whatever it is. I said, great, sounds good. We talk more about that. Then I said, now, how are you going to measure the results? How are you going to know that we accomplish what we're trying to accomplish here? And quite often they don't know that, especially if it's kind of a meeting planner as opposed to the executive VP. And so now you know you maybe you're not talking to the right person to really get the buy-in to a bigger project. But when you start to quantify it and you start to tie whatever you do to something tangible with a dollar sign, you know, either increased revenue or productivity or harmony in the work, but whatever it is, the more you can tie it to that, then the more, the more measurable it is, 
and the more they're going to spend for it or invest in it, I should say. And then the outcomes. So let's see what the outcomes are going to be, right? And you really focus on the outcomes, and there's intended outcomes and unintended outcomes, I've learned from Stephen and Alan. And so the intended outcomes is what you expect, they expect, but sometimes there's things that happen that you don't expect. So for instance, I used to sell how to get more referrals, how to get more clients through referrals introductions, right? Teach the sales rep, teach the agents, teach the advisors. But what happened is the manager started using it for recruiting. And so they got better at recruiting, which was good because it's important to them. And they became better coaches for the reps. So now, rather than just selling referral training, I'm selling a culture. I'm selling building a culture. So this unintended outcome of managers starting to use it for recruiting show me that I had something bigger here. And now we come in at the high level and we go, it trickles down to everybody. Everyone in the company has an impact on the ability to create word of mouth referrals and introductions, even if they're not directly relating to a customer or a client. So that unintended outcome is really mushroomed into something a lot more um, than, than what I started with. Now let me ask you this, did, did the unintended outcomes, did you see those or do you see those now that you've got the little experience under your belt, so you go in with your intended outcomes first and you look for the unintended outcomes? A little bit of both. Uh, it's an evolution. Yeah. So at first I wasn't, didn't know and then I started, then what happens is they tell me what's happening. And when they tell me what's happening in the organization and how they're using my material and how it's having an impact, then of course that becomes uh, how I talk about it to other people. So what might have been unintended initially now becomes part of my program. We're gonna intend to create it next time. And so it creates more robustness to what the outcomes I can help them produce. Isn't that something? I think that's something we all have to do with all of our programs is to that very specific follow-up as to the impact that I had on whatever I'm delivering because that's going to give me opportunities to serve you in other areas that I didn't, wasn't even thinking about before to take this to the next level. Yeah, and the challenge that we all have in this industry is that not every one of our clients measures and, and, and pays attention afterwards. They don't always track as well. And so now I'm bringing tools out that will help them track the impact of the behavior I teach. So, like I said, we're in the results producing business. The more we can help our clients actually produce a, a measurable result, the better they're off and the better we're off and the more we can charge for what we do because we're bringing more tangible value. Let's talk about the way we charge. Let's talk about the more we can charge. Talk about pricing a little bit. Yeah, and you know I can't give specific numbers here because we're, we're an association and we don't want to get charged with price fixing, et cetera. But I can give you a little bit of the process. What I'm not doing is trying to... Uh, say, all right, I'm going to charge uh, you know fifty dollars a head, hundred dollars a head, five hundred dollars a head. I'm not doing per head pricing because it's hard to measure. It's hard to you know. Then we have to trust and document and all that. But what I will do is I'll get a sense of what are they willing to invest per person, and then how many people are being trained, and then I get a sense of what likely we'll be able to what the market will bear. So this really is what the market will bear pricing. I've seen licensing agreements anywhere from. Uh, with other you know, folks is from 5,000 to 300,000 for a year. Companies will spend more on their high-level executives than they will on other people. They'll spend more on salespeople than they will on customer service people. So it depends on what your message is. The softer, the softer, the softer it becomes, probably the less you can charge because they can't see the, the net The more result. challenging to The more challenging, yeah. Measure. But when people start to ask you, you know, how do we get this to more people? We can't bring you in every time. That's when you know you have a licensing opportunity when they want you more than they can afford you. And that's where this really comes into play. 
Let me ask you this, Bill. Let's say I've never done licensing before. I'm just getting into this. How do I go about finding a value, the number? What am I going to charge these folks? Is there anything that you might recommend that help yeah, come I've up actually with that? gotten a lot of calls from NSA members over the years of, you know, I've got an opportunity. Okay. I got an opportunity. They want more of me. I wish we could get more of you. Where do I start? You know, how, where do I start? Yeah. All right. So if they want more of you, it means you probably have a, a transferable process of mm. some sort. So that's good. So the next thing is trying to figure out the pricing, what the market will bear. So one of the questions I ask is, you know, have you done this sort of arrangement in the past? Have you done licensing arrangements? And in my industry, most of my big clients have done it in the past. So they've had th things that didn't work and things that work. Sometimes I'll let them tell me what they've paid in the past. Sometimes they won't. So we have to kind of figure it out a little bit. So then what I do now, because I deal with producers, salespeople, agents, advisors, I can ask questions like, what is the value of the first time client? When someone acquires a new client, what's the value to that advisor? What's the value to the firm? And then I can really get a pretty good sense if, let's say, the client's worth $1,000 hypothetically. You know, would they invest 100 or 200 or $300 in a salesperson that would, if they just got one new client from this, would net 1000 and the answer is, yeah, they probably would. So that's where we have to ask good questions to get a sense of value of customers and, and the measurable aspect of the problem we solve. If we never get to the measurable aspect of the problem we solve, it's harder to talk about that. Yeah. Now, I'm in a niche industry, and I usually know the numbers ahead of time, but I'll still ask them to tell me because I want them talking through it. I want them kind of doing the math at the same time I'm doing the math. It's a really good price conditioning. What are the biggest mistakes people make when it comes to licensing? Well, probably the biggest mistake is not having a tight, complete contract. And NSA members can get a copy of my contract, kind of a template if they want to, at referralcoach.com. One more time. Referralcoach.com forward slash agreement. Referralcoach.com forward slash agreement. I've got a copy of my contract sitting there waiting for them. And so they can look at it. And so, for instance, you want to be very clearly defined on who this is for. Is it for you know customer service reps in the United States, salespeople in it? Now I always make it in the United States, especially if it's a company that is international, because I've had companies come back to me and say, "How much more would it be to bring our international divisions in?" And I say, "Well, you know, this plus X," and so that's nice. Obviously, you got to make sure that you own all the copyright; that this is a license for them to use the copyright on a very specific time frame. Could be a year. Could be. Three years, it could be, uh, Roxanne Emmerich ta taught me about the, the self-renewing contract and how do you create a self-renewing contract that they have to give a lot of notice if they want to get out of it, and, and that's great. So obviously, you got to keep bringing some more value. you got to keep making it worthwhile. If you do any updates, you bring it into the system that they get. So just having a good contract. Now, I'm not an attorney. This is not legal advice. But it's important to have a really good contract and not just gentleman's agreement or work something up yourself that you think covers it all because it probably doesn't. I want to go back to this idea of printing money illegally because you or legally. Let's go back to printing money illegally because, Bill, that's wrong. <laughs> what, if we, what if we could do it legally? <laughs> what if we could do it legally? All right. So, so let me tell you that. All right. Yeah. Here's why I call it printing money illegally. First of all, generally speaking, in licensing, the cost of sale is, is pretty low compared to you know, what you're making. But I've had many licensing agreements that have gone 9, 10, 12-year renewals. We're in a 12th year with one company. They've woven my stuff into the fabric of new, new advisor training. And so when it comes time to renew, 
I get my little one-page renewal agreement. I changed 2013 to 2014, <laughs> right? And if I added a new little thing, you know, maybe a new DVD or something, I'll include it in that, and I send it off. That's my cost for sale, right? So it costs me five, ten minutes to create this renewal agreement. If I've offered a few webinars in the process, okay, so that's a little bit of cost to sale. Keep it current, sure. Yeah, but it's pretty much... Uh, 99% profit. And that is the ROI for having something that really becomes that transferable process, something that can really, you know, they can take and run with and own. Michael, become part of their culture. Licensing is the profit that NSA members make from all that hard work over the years. All that hard work creating that content that's valuable to clients that they really covet and helping them produce results. This is the true profit to all of that. This is, the, this is the highest point of leverage that I've discovered is actually licensing. You know, when I think of the holidays, I think of family. And, well, you know my opinion. I think our NSA is one giant family. So, on this episode of Chapter Chat, our man on the street, CSP Tim Durkin, is going to dive into one of the largest benefits of being an NSA member, the Chapter Community. Well, welcome Rochelle Rice, current chair of the Chapter Leadership Committee. You are also past president of the New York City chapter. So congratulations, thank you for coming on to Chapter Chat. Now, we have talked about successful chapters that serve their members best, that offer three things, content, community, and connection. Now, Elaine Dumbler was here and talked really energetically about the value of the content. Your particular area is community and how it's helped you build community and be in the community. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, what first came to my mind, Tim, was in 2008, I went to my first NSA convention, and it was the evening of the gala, and I walked out there, and everyone was on the dance floor, and I said, these are my people. <laughs> I had no idea that this would be the community that would not only support me and my business, but really help me to grow on both levels. The community to me on the chapter level really started when I really felt it was when I got to lead in the chapter on the board and serve as president. When I served as the president, I realized I really loved leading a team and those are transferable skills actually right into my business today. So your chapter work has helped you outside and been successful. And I know that you have not only a very successful business, but you also do work outside in the community and lead in leadership capacities. Now, the other question that I have is, would you agree with the statement that I've heard that if you want to rise and become a next level person, you have to hang around with next level people? Do you find that that happens in the chapter? Well, it's interesting you say that because Nito Cobain had a great quote that said, if you want to be a success in life, you need to walk hand in hand and side by side with great people. And that's what I experienced as the most benefit on the chapter level. It's the greatest benefit on the chapter level uh -huh. is to be with people who are great people that really want to see you succeed and who give so much of their time and energy free easily to you. Yep. So what happens then at the chapter meetings is that you not only get the content, the um, latest and greatest in social media, the latest and greatest in running a small business such as we all do, or in some cases a large business, uh, but you also get the community which is hanging around with next level people that sort of raises all boats. What is it? A rising tide raises all boats. 
Well, exactly. And I think that's one of the greatest reasons for being in a chapter on the local level is because mm -hmm. I, I have probably cut my learning curve by five years. I was able to really change and take those skills to really impact my business just by being on the local level with great, great people. Mm -hmm. It's By being on the local level, it's changed our whole chapter incredibly. We're all succeeding much better through referrals with one another, through building our businesses, and through really just impacting the world. Well, let me ask you a question. Now, I've been in a lot of communities, served on a number of boards. Sometimes in communities, you know that they don't always get along very well, or they don't always get along perfectly well, and they're smooth sailing. Does that ever happen at the chapter level? That is such an interesting question. Uh -huh. Yes, I believe on the chapter level, we are almost like a microcosm of the world. We have to get along. We have to learn to live with one another in that community of a chapter in order to be able to go out into the world. So I think it's interesting that you ask me that because I had a definite experience on that level where you can deal with a difficult person on the chapter level that for sure you are going to see outside in your business and in your life. Uh -huh. And by able to have that opportunity to deal with it in a small situation gives you the skill set to be able to go out there and, and work with it in your life. So um, hoping for smooth sailing is probably not the best idea that we can actually learn from these uh, adverse circumstances and then transfer that learning to uh, to outside. It's the human interaction. I think this is why I enjoy the, the chapter level so much and why we get so much out of it. I can guarantee you that by learning the skills on the chapter level, right. when you go out into the world, you're going to see it and this time out in the world you'll be able to know how to handle it. Oh, excellent. Rochelle, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on Chapter Chat, and thank you for telling us a little bit about community uh, at the chapter level, and uh, thank you for a great year as the chair of the Chapter Leadership Committee. Thank you, Tim. See ya. Our next guest is Russ Riddle. He is the all-being master of time, space, and dimension for the Riddle firm. And you're an expert at copyright, trademarking, and licensing for businesses. Always glad to be with you, Michael. This is a, uh, a popular topic on VOE, copyrights, trademarks. But I think it's an important one to bring up almost every year only because as speakers and as business people we should be focusing on this but we really don't and i think the need is is that our culture is so into everything's fair game i can i mean i can literally steal on the internet and not know that i'm doing it and i need to be aware of what i'm doing in the industry myself to make sure i'm protecting it so i want to talk about copyright versus trademark one more time and i really want to take this approach what do you think when is it time to bring in a lawyer, to bring in that expertise and say, you know what, this is bigger than me. I've got to make sure I'm working with somebody. So not that I have to be aware of going on, but this is the time to do it. So I'd like to kind of take that little spin on it. Tell me, first of all, let's just start off. Tell me the difference between copyright and trademark. They're both intellectual property types, but they're essentially different. They're designed to protect different things, different people. Copyright it has its genesis in the United States Constitution that our founders realized that, hey, if we create things, it's our baby. We should have, for a, a finite amount of time, have dominion over that. It is ours. Mm -hmm. And so copyright laws came into being to protect our creations, our expressions, uh, things of content, typically. Trademarks, on the other side, it's not designed to protect 
you as a creator of it. You come up with a trademark. Well, that's that's nice. And this is not to say that trademarks are not valuable to you. They are. Obviously, the red background, white scripted Coca-Cola is a very, very valuable trademark. Another one would be the scripted Disney that you see on things. People see it a mile away. They know that's quality stuff. It's very valuable to the Immediate owner. recognition. Strong right. branding. But Trademark laws didn't come around to protect the owner of the trademark. Trademarks are all about the consumer. That the fact that consumers have the right and should be able to recognize from a trademark the source and quality of those goods or services. So when you're looking at it, and I won't go into this because it'll start digging way down deep into the complexities of, of trademark law, but a lot of the nuances of how things are ruled upon in trademark law is because they're looking at it from the standpoint of the consumer. The trademarks, what they protect are like single words, logos, short slogans. Those things are not eligible for copyright. So give me an example of when it would be good to invest in a good trademark. Well, you want to invest in a good trademark whenever you have a solid brand that you're building your business around. For instance, uh, I mentioned Disney, the script, uh, Disney. You and I go into, you have children, I have children. I heard you just had your first grandchild. I'm not, was, that, was that you or was that somebody that else? was not me, Oh, my maybe you hadn't heard. But, <laughs> I was going to say, but really? <laughs> where did you hear this vicious well, I have you mixed up with some other tornadoes. Now, my first but, daughter got but, married, but oh, there was no grandchildren okay. involved. Right. And let's make that but, perfectly clear. <laughs> But you see the Disney trademark, and we don't spend a great deal of time reading all about on the packaging, okay, what's this story about, and is that going to be mature, and all this thing. We see Disney, and I get we, it. we snatch it and leave Walmart, because sure. we got to be somewhere else. Sure. And we don't, because we rely on, we know where that's from, we know what they stand for, we know the quality. But why do I have to pay in a, a trademark if I can just put it on a package and have people get all that without get, maybe you pay for a trademark? Well, you can do that because there are common law trademarks. You can put it on there, and when I say common law, that means there are also state laws. There are cases that say we have common law trademarks. The difference between that and like a registered, you see the circle R instead of the T in? Mm -hmm. that, that is signifying that it's a registered trademark, so says the United States Patent and Trademark Office. And those are broader protections because then you have all the protections of the Lanham Act and the, the federal trademark laws, and that's a good thing. It's powerful. Protects me from? Infringers. It, it, it protects you from would-be thieves. So when I've done a great job of, of really branding my look, my logo, my colors, my script, I want to go out of my way to trademark that because I do want people to see that and get my brand. Right. But I'm going to pay for that look to be protected. Right. I mean, you've already got some protections, as I said, under the common law trademark. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'll give you for an instance. Uh, the Redskins trademarks just got canceled by the United States Patent and Trademark Office. That will be appealed. We'll see if that holds up. But that's not the end all for the Redskins brand because if they want to stick with that brand, that's just canceling the United States Trademark Office registered trademarks. You still have, they still have protection under state law. They still have common law trademark rights. And the most mascots of sports teams are also copyrighted characters. A character can be copyrighted. 
as well as trademarks. So they, is that going to make the Redskins go away, even if the United States Patent and Trademark Office cancellations hold up? No, because there's other stuff out there. Well, my mind is exploding <laughs> right now. It really is exploding okay. with, holy cow, I've never even considered these things. So as a business owner, when, when would it be appropriate for me to start to say, I need to focus on whether I need a copyright or a trademark? I need to invest in this. Well, let's start with copyright, because right. there really is a big difference. Copyright, and here's a myth about copyright. People think that you have to register, file these, this book transcript or whatever with the copyright office to create a copyright. That is completely false. Copyright, I'll give you the legal mumbo jumbo, then I'll tell you what it means. Copyright springs into being the moment that it's fixed in a tangible medium of expression. What does that mean? Well, when ink's on paper when something's saved on hard drive. It's saved, fixed, in a tangible medium. Copyright springs into being much like a jack-in-the-box. It's there. You have copyright in that book before you even send it in to the Copyright Office. Now, you would still want to register it with the Copyright Office because there's all kinds of advantages. A, you've got a great piece of evidence. Oh, just go to the Copyright Office and look when I filed that. That's a great piece of evidence. But more than that, if you're going to sue someone, you found someone ripped off your book, ripped off huge sections of your book, and you want to sue them for copyright infringement under the Copyright Act. Or at least get them to cease and desist. You, you have to have it registered with the Copyright Office as a prerequisite to bring a lawsuit under the Copyright Act. So that's one good reason alongside the evidence. But another thing about if you take advantage of the Copyright Act, there are statutory attorney's fees that you can get. There are statutory damages you can get. Two pieces of a copyright lawsuit are, did they copy it? That's, that's the first piece. But okay, we find that yes, indeed, they had access, it's substantially similar, they, they ripped it off. The second piece is, what are my damages? That's sometimes hard to show. What would my sales, you know, it, it gets a little iffy. So the Copyright Act has, okay, if you want to opt for the statutory damages, which become significant, you can just say, Judge, I'll take the statutory damages. So there's some great advantages to send something in, register it with the Copyright Office. But it's not to create the copyright. The copyright is already in place. And I, I always tell my clients, err on, on the side of being liberal in your filings with the Copyright Office because it's only 35 bucks a time. And also, you, well, can, hello. you can do something as compilations. Say you're a poet. And you don't have a book of poetry, but you've got, say, 20 different poems that you want to register with the cover. Now, you could send them in one at a time, 35 bucks. That's still pretty cheap. You could just put them in a binder, say, Michael Hoffman's Poetry, Volume Number 1, send it in, 35 bucks. So copyright is very cheap. And copyright is really that registration that says this has been fixed in a medium and we've got proof for it. So that if somebody, if, I, if it does show up, which happens a lot on the Internet, right. where your stuff is taken and run with it. And if it does put you in a situation where you say, you know what, this has gone too far. It's not just them promoting it. They're actually claiming it to be theirs, which has happened to me personally a couple mm -hmm. of times, that I have a place to go back to and go, no, it's official. This is mine and this right. is when it was registered. Okay, so that protection. Um, On the trademark side, it's, a, it's more expensive, it's more laborious, you need to be much more intentional. Now, you, you've seen the symbols, the little superscripted TM, 
on a lot of things stands for trademark dm you can put that on there without registering with the cop with i'm sorry with the trademark office because there are common law trademark claims and and rights but you cannot put the circle r on there until the u.s patent and trademark office says you have a registered trademark now that's not when you file it that's months down the road and you probably jump through some hoops in between there and they finally grant registration and i mentioned earlier that the trademark laws are about the consumer here's here's a for instance if you put that circle r on there it's actually illegal to put a circle r until on it's actually registered if it's not a registered trademark because that symbol is telling the consuming public that that's a registered trademark when in fact it's not so you have to be very careful about the symbol you use. But on trademarks, it's there's 45 classes of goods and services. Now, many of those we speakers never deal with: petroleum solvents, you know, jewelry, some of that we might not ever touch upon. But you're going to have probably class nine, which is recorded things, whether it's permanently downloaded things that they can get MP3s or CDs, DVDs. That's class nine. Well, you probably have a book. If not, you've at least got written materials that you use in your business and you sell or, or so forth so that's class 16 then you when you stand up and do what you do that's class 41 in most cases with us speakers so there is three classes of goods it's $325 per class per mark to file with the United States Patent and Trademark Office so already if you've got one trademark say that's a logo of a tornado that's thousand bucks 975 that's not even attorney's fees that's the u.s patent and trademark office piece so from a cost standpoint you want to be very strategic because it gets expensive you know you're going to be just like on copyright side you're going to be registering a lot of things 35 bucks a pop but at a you know running on a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars a time you're not going to be registering trying to register so 20, really 30 make months. sure that make that sure focus it's the one that now that's the cost side of it why else would you only do that is because trademarks are all about distinction that you see that disney and wham i don't even have to have my glasses on i know that's disney or coca-cola but if you've got say michael hoffman igniting performance guy has 20 trademarks well which is it and everything's kind of diluted you know what's his brand you know a lot of people will have a logo maybe the name maybe a tagline or a slogan so you might have two or three trademarks but don't get lots because you're never going to receive distinction People won't know what that is. Great, great differentiation as far as the benefits of a copyright versus a trademark. It really, you've got to think it through as far as I've put this together. All of this effort has gone into it. It's going to be a fantastic product. Maybe it's a book. Maybe it's an article. You know, whatever, wherever we're trying to do, I want to brand this. When it comes to my brand, which do I, you know, copyright, go for it. I mean, it's inexpensive. You're protecting your ideas and your thoughts. especially Not your ideas, but the expression of The your expression ideas. of your ideas in a fixed medium and then really pay attention to what you're going to trademark because we're putting our stake in the ground if you will for a while and making that okay always glad to be with you michael all right voe tribe you've got your walking papers you're going to build your business right get a great relationship with a strong lawyer set it up right from the beginning and get your copyrights your trademarks set up properly and set yourselves up for success NSA is a culture of giving back. 
by default. I mean, look at what Cabot Robert created. He wanted to create this pie and make the pie bigger. So not only everybody got a piece of the pie, they got a bigger piece of the pie. That's giving back. We have our foundation, this fund for speakers who are having issues. The reason we can do that is that because our members are stepping up and sharing part of what they make, of which sometimes they even give even more than is expected based on them. And I think that's wonderful. Our organization, it's its inherent, it seems, in the DNA of many of the people that become members. That's part of what we do. So from my perspective, I would like to see people be as successful as possible. If you're successful in business, you can take care of what's going on at home. You can take time off, you can be with your family, you can take the vacations and spend the time you deserve to be a good parent, a good husband, a good wife, a good brother, sister, or a good son or daughter to your parents. Another reason to be wildly successful in business, which is one of the things we want to do at NSA, is make you wildly successful, is because then you can make great business decisions, and you can run a great business, and you can have employees and staff to do what needs to be done and pay them well. And then you can also make decisions for your customers that you might not normally be able to make if you weren't making enough money to do so. And that might be, hey, I'll take this engagement at a lower fee mm -hmm. and donate the money to charity because I don't need the money so desperately that I have to take every dollar that comes in. And the final reason to be extremely successful is because when you are successful and you do give back, you can give back more. And as wildly successful as I want you to be, I want you to be in the mindset of intentionally thinking, how can I give back to my community? What's my favorite organization, charity? What's my group in need? Who are the people that need it that we can help out? Yeah. You know, sometimes when we talk about giving back, it's about dollars, but actually it's all of those is time, talent and treasure. You know, it's, well, what am I doing to spend time where I need to spend time? And what am I doing to use my finances to impact those around me that need, but also it's your talent as well. And you know, you, you've done that before. You've talked about those three things, being successful to give to your family, give uh, to the people that you work with your business, but also to those around you. Tell me a little bit about how you, you know, how do you make those decisions to say, you know what, to where you, you're actually donating your time? Well, donating time, I mean, Michael, you're donating your time and your talent. And ultimately, it does come down to dollars because time is money. And That's true. there are times that you're probably say, saying, I will sacrifice something that I would normally do today in my business to take care of my members at NSA because I volunteered for this responsibility, VOE. Any volunteer at any level of NSA, on a chapter level, you know, at our board of directors, and ultimately even what I do here now is, is representing the organization as president, that's volunteering and that's giving back to the community. And that's a lot of time and a lot of portions of my business get sacrificed and even portions of my personal life get sacrificed in order to give back to the community that's given so much to me. You give your time, you can give dollars, you can give your brain, you can give your brawn. Hey, my daughters, we all helped out. We built homes for the poor. We went down into Mexico into Tijuana and we went on a really amazing spiritual experience where we built homes. My daughters were exposed to a family that we built a home for that uh, they had a, basically they had a tent uh, and it wasn't even a tent. They were on the ground and when it rained, their floor where they slept was mud. So we took these these kids and the, and the mom to Walmart to buy them underwear. And one of them said, I've never had a new pair of underwear 
in their entire life. I mean, that's And your mind just explodes because we have so much. That was one of the most incredible spiritual giving moments. And I'm not a religious man, but I never felt closer to anything more religious than I was sitting on top of that roof, banging a nail into a roof, knowing what I was doing for this family was far more important than anything I could have been doing at any moment at that time. Well, you connected to humanity. It really is special. And it was more special. It was watching my daughters uh, who, gosh, I can't remember how old were they probably at the time when they were teenagers. I got to tell you, I had a 13 year old and a 10 year old and I was watching my 13 year old with an electric saw thinking we're in Mexico. She's going to lose her arm right now. Where do I go? <laughs> I know my daughter, my, you know, banging nails with me thinking at any moment she's going to tumble down. Something's going to happen. But no, uh, you know, all prevailed for the good. I mean, we, we built this house, and the way it works is they have to come up with a tiny little bit of money for the land. And, the, and they had this, their home, it's 8 by 12, and it's two rooms. The back room, think about how tiny that is. Six feet by eight feet is where the bed is for this woman and her two kids. And on the front is where we put a little table, and we put some, um, we put a little stove. But we built this home, we put this roof over their head, and this is something they've never had before. And it was just really special. I think that's the secret though, isn't it? That's what I love about our association, because I think that's what we're built on. It's that concept of you give, and the goal isn't to receive, but you just receive so much. And you even said, you know, participating in the chapter, we just run that up the flagpole so much. If you really want to get the most out of this experience, give, give. And I think you can say that with anything, whether it's the chapter or NSA or just in life. If you really want to get the most out of it, give. I love what Nito Cobain preaches, and he's been up on stage a number of times at our conventions. You know, he's the philanthropist of the year. He's one of the most philanthropic people that I know. And I love the quote when he quotes William Barclay, and he says, always give without remembering, always receive without forgetting. So let me ask you this, Shep, what would you have us do this month? to focus on this concept of how we're running our businesses in the the area of giving? I would like you to think about being intentional. Years ago, I learned something from Nito Cobain called intentional congruency, was making sure that everything you did in your business, the if you added something to your business, if you developed an extra product, created another speech that was congruent, intentional congruency, it all belonged together. Mm. From Naomi Rodi, I learned about being significant. That's a big part of what she does. Mm-hmm. You take the word intentional from Nito and significant from Naomi, you have intentional significance. That's a way to think about your business. I write down my goals, quarterly goals, financial, everything I want to accomplish project-wise. I have a set of personal goals as well. One of the things I always make sure is that I keep in front of me my concept of being intentionally significant. I know how much money I want to give away in my lifetime. I look for opportunities to do so. And just by writing it down on an ongoing, regular basis, every three months, and then I stare at it every week as I go through my weekly focus, which is tied to my quarterly goals. As I write it down and I put it into this tool that I've created, I'm constantly looking at it. I'm constantly aware of it. I'm constantly being reminded of it. You know, my thought in business is that's what we do. We're not accidentally successful. Many times we do it on purpose. We set goals. We have a plan. We have a system. Why not do the same thing for giving back? So I challenge all of you to be intentionally significant for next year, 
in the year after and in many years to come. Close off this month, let's have a cup of Hoff, which is basically me connecting you to your NSA community and giving you my thoughts on the topics of the day. Since VOE's main focus is to give you tips to grow your business and rock your platform, I have an end-of-year question for you. How are you wrapping up this year? What are you doing to reach out to those that have meant the most in your business and let them know just what they mean to you? They need to hear you know. As a smart business person, don't let this familial time of year get past you without building a familial connection to those that you've done business with and will do business with. That's why we need to take time to reach out and connect with some kind of correspondence of appreciation. What are you doing? There's always the traditional sign your name on the card and put it in the mail to everyone that you've ever done business with, but please don't because you probably didn't send it yourself and it really shows that you've taken the least amount of effort, which is for the most part worse than if you didn't send one at all. (laughs) I mean, come on. We've got lots of creative opportunities here. Personally, I create a one minute thank you video custom to each recipient and if I really want to look cool, I'll add a video background from any number of photo or stock video backgrounds like bigstockphoto.com. And of course, there's send-out cards, which you must look into for all of your customized card ideas, and iJot.com. That's E-Y-E-J-O-T.com. If you really want to connect with video, I tell you, that is the best. Whatever your method is this time of year, be creative, reach out, and stand out. And speaking of standing out, I've got two big announcements. In the new year, the VOE app is being upgraded to allow you to see more video with a much better experience for those great ideas that are better seen than heard. And you can get involved by sending me a one-minute video about how you build your business or a tip or a technique that rocks your platform. Be a part of VOE by sending your video to Hightail.com forward slash the letter U forward slash ignitingperformance.com. We want to make you a superstar, so come be a part of it. The other big announcement is the upcoming Winter Lab Business School. It's in February in Las Vegas, baby. John Petz is chairing this event, and it will be one for the books. Now, if you've heard about the Business Accelerator event that was off the charts successful, then you know the quality of experiences that NSA is cranking out once again this year. Well, we even have a VOE live session that you will not want to miss. I'm telling you, it's going to be one for the books, and you've got to get there. Go to NSA speaker.org and make it happen. (laughs) All right, let's wrap up this month. Our topic was connected to giving back. It's very appropriate for the holidays, don't you think? Nothing says giving like this time of year. It's it's everywhere. Oh, sure, you can get caught up in the commercial hype, and it can be self-serving and what am I going to get type of thing, but, but I trust that you'll not lose sight that this is the time of year where a real good look is needed and celebrated in the many blessings that we have. Our NSA community was founded on giving, giving to each other our time, our talent, and even our treasure to ignite the growth of each other's businesses and to impact this world. So I encourage you, get recharged in your business and in your passion for life by reveling in a season of giving. I'm Michael Hoffman. Happy holidays. We'll talk to you next month.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>